everyone, and welcome to the Filene Fill-In. I'm Holly Fearing with Filene. The Filene Fill-In is the podcast where we fill you in on what's been going on here at Filene's home base and out and about in the financial services world. What really is an algorithm? Are you curious about this too? This episode dives a bit deeper into this topic that we've talked about here before and relates to much of our research on emerging technology. I just really wanted to know more. In ordinary terms, not only what an algorithm is, but how they work, and what the prevalence of the use of artificial intelligence and algorithms mean for consumer and cooperative finance. Filene's research director, Taylor Nelms, brings us his friend, Dr. Nick Seaver, assistant professor of anthropology at Tufts University, who has written a book about the making of algorithmic music recommendations to provide us some clarity on this cloudy topic. Spoiler alert, Nick says an algorithm is a lot of things, depending on who you ask. Typical anthropologist answer, right? But we also explore how algorithms can be a series of steps to follow to turn an input into an output. That's an algorithm. Or it can be a more complex machine learning software process that learns from the source data and makes use of it to provide a future prediction. That's an algorithmic system. Nick also teaches us why you can't just set it and forget it, with these types of algorithmic systems, and what can go wrong if you do that. The coolest part is when we explore how amazing it would be for credit unions to be the ones to make data portable for their members, let them decide to participate in the data's use, and have power over how they are represented in the data. Never ones to shy away from introducing chaos into an algorithm, Taylor and Nick talk about the benefits of exploring and exploiting music recommender algorithms, and a good time is had by all. Just don't be caught calling an algorithmic system an algorithm. Okay, thanks again for joining us today, everyone. I have with me a very special guest. Taylor has brought in a friend of his, Dr. Nick Seaver. And Taylor, I'm going to let you take the lead on this and introduce Nick to our audience and kind of set the stage for why we asked Nick to join our podcast today. Sure, absolutely. So, In today's podcast, we're going to step a little bit outside the credit union movement and then bring it back. We're joined by Nick Seaver, who's a professor at Tufts University, and as Holly said, he's a good friend of mine from back when we shared a windowless office when we were finishing our PhDs together at the University of California, Irvine. So Nick is an anthropologist and ethnographer of technology. He studies algorithms, and in particular, he studies algorithmic recommendation systems. So think about like Amazon's book recommendations, or more to the point, in terms of Nick's research, think about Spotify's or Pandora's music recommendations. And in fact, Nick's writing a book called Computing Taste, The Making of Algorithmic Music Recommendation. And this might seem pretty far afield from financial services, but Nick and his colleagues who are studying um, algorithmic systems and algorithmic decision-making have shown the growing importance of such systems in all sorts of domains across um, our everyday lives. And you know, by working directly with the people who create and maintain such systems, the engineers, the coders, the programmers, the designers, Nick shows us that these algorithms are really far more human than we've been led to believe. So as he's written in one of his articles, if you press on any algorithmic decision, you will find many human ones. If you can't see a human in the feedback loop that produces those algorithmic decisions, then you just need to look for a bigger loop. So today we'll be digging into Nick's research and what it means for consumer and cooperative finance. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
And Taylor, I wanted to say that when we were talking about this in advance, you were kind of hoping that two things that Nick could share with us and our audience today, one around the broader implications of his work and understanding how algorithms work. And two, I think this is really interesting, but making the argument for the different perspective and skill sets that anthropologists and ethnographers can bring to financial services. I know you're an anthropologist, so it sounds like you're just making the case for your own job here. That's right. I do have to defend myself on a daily basis here at Filene. So, Nick, thank you for helping me make that argument. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> so, Nick, just to kick us off, you know, let's start with this question around um, algorithm, algorithms. So, can you tell us what an algorithm is and what is an anthropologist like you doing studying them? Oh, it's the hardest question and the first one always. Yeah. So an algorithm is a lot of things, uh, it turns out, depending on who you ask. And as an anthropologist, uh, I'm interested in how people of all sorts uh, define and interact with algorithms. So I'm not particularly interested in finding the one true technical definition. This is something that some people are very concerned about. I'm much more interested in, you know, when people in their ordinary lives say algorithm, what do they mean? So I would say that the common definition that people give that's you know technically correct, although it's still fairly vague, uh, is that an algorithm is a procedure. It's a series of steps that you can follow to turn some sort of input into an output. So if you took intro to algorithms as a you know college undergraduate, which is a class that I actually was just guest lecturing in the other week, um, you would learn about something like a sorting algorithm. You know, give it a list of numbers that are in uh, the wrong order, uh, and it will follow some procedure uh, to put those numbers in the correct order. You know, you do this over and over and over again, and then you'll have the output you want at the end. That's what an algorithm is supposed to be in its sort of simple sense. But when we talk about algorithms, generally, when people in the public, when it gets into the news, when people working at big companies talk about algorithms, they don't usually mean something so simple uh, as a sorting algorithm. They usually mean something along the lines of a machine learning system. So some very complicated, uh, usually, uh, set of software processes, usually more than one, that learn in some sense from a set of source data, right? So you might take a you know, the, the set of people's music listening histories on a music streaming platform, and you might compute something from those that suggests what those people might like in the future. That would be uh, the kind of thing that people would call an algorithm now. And that second thing is super complicated, and it's super different from a sorting algorithm. So one of the most common things I have to do as an anthropologist of algorithms is say, it's okay that the second thing isn't the first thing. And in fact, if you want to be interested in what people say when they talk about algorithms, you need to study this second thing probably more uh, than you want to study the first thing, particularly if you're an anthropologist. And so when you say you want to study this second thing, this much more complicated set of kind of layered procedures that um, feed back on one another, that make use of a whole bunch of different kinds of data to try to make some kind of future prediction, how do you do that? How do you go about digging into such a complex technical process? Yeah, so I guess there's two layers here. One is, you know, how is this different from a sorting algorithm, right? What qualities do these systems tend to have that those other systems don't? Uh, and there, I'm fond of calling these algorithmic systems rather than algorithms per se, because you might be surprised with people who work in computers are very strict about definitions, and they get upset when people call something an algorithm incorrectly. So I, I, out of deference to them, I'll say an algorithmic system uh, is my name for this sort of broad set of its data sets, its you know, algorithms in the strict sense, its people making decisions, 
it's change over time, it's what an algorithm looks like in practice inside of a, you know, some sort of organization. And what's striking about that is if the normal features of an algorithm are supposed to be that, you know, it's very rigid, it gives you the same results every time, it's reliable, it's very strictly defined, it doesn't change, you know, a bubble sort algorithm, which is one way to sort numbers, uh, for instance, that is going to be the same when you do it, no matter how you do it. If you move to the algorithmic system where you've got, you know, things like, say, the Facebook newsfeed algorithm, right, the thing that sorts what shows up in your newsfeed and decides what you see there, uh, that system is changing constantly, partly because it's trying to learn things that's, you know, being personalized to you, but partly because tons of people work at Facebook and they're editing it all the time. So my argument has long been that if you want to understand how those systems work, it's actually more important, uh, especially for anthropologists, and this is something we can do, to study the people who are involved in making those countless decisions, because what will make Facebook tomorrow be different from Facebook today uh, is less the algorithm in a strict sense, that computer system that we can reliably predict what it will do, and more the set of people who work at Facebook, who are making decisions along all sorts of lines that have often very little to do with some sort of, you know, objective two plus two equals four kind of math. So who are these people that are doing this? I'm interested in this, especially in the context of a financial services industry organization. Who would be somebody that would be working on an algorithm in that context? So I can talk sort of first about my own experience with music recommendations. So that's the sort of fairly narrow area I've looked at. And as Taylor mentioned, it's not super easy to figure out how to study this kind of thing, in particular because the places where these kinds of systems get made are companies that have non-disclosure agreements. They don't want the details of how they make decisions getting out into the world, all of that kind of stuff. So it's been very challenging actually, to try to study how those decisions get made in any sort of detail. Um, I was lucky enough to manage to get an internship at a startup that was working on this. So I got a sense of how it happened in one particular place. And at least in the world of recommendation, uh, what's interesting is that these decisions are often made or historically have been made by engineers, by people with mostly uh, computer science kind of training. So although they're interested in something, you know, like why do people like what they like? in the context of recommendation, these very sort of obviously cultural questions, there hasn't been a whole lot of user research. That's sort of changing now. More companies are hiring user researchers. Um, but I think the reason for this is that when you're working with all of this data about how people interact with your platform, that comes to stand for the users for a lot of people in these organizations. So the engineers and the people who sort of organize these companies historically haven't thought it super important to put user research on top of it because they already have what they think of as all the data about what the people do, right? Who needs extra information about your users when you literally have every interaction they make with your platform stored in a big old Hadoop cluster somewhere. That's a big data kind of database. Yeah, thanks for the uh, the technical terminology, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to not get too technical. <laughs> no, it's all good. So, you know, you mentioned that for many of these recommendation systems in particular, the folks designing them, the engineers, the programmers, the designers, they they care actually about cultural things. They care about why do people like what they like. So can you tell us about, you know, as an anthropologist, I feel like culture is is your and our stock and trade. So what role does culture play in these systems? And, you know, maybe you can give us a sense of like, you know, how do anthropologists think about culture? At the risk of being too focused on music, at least for now, maybe we can broaden out more to talk about uh, credit unions a bit in a minute. But the um, 
this has been an interesting problem as well, because anthropologists, you know, culture, we think it's like our thing. We're the people who know how to study it right. And clearly, if you try to do it just by counting what people do in your interface, you're doing it wrong. Um, my sense as an anthropologist, and I'm fairly on the margins of anthropology, I think, when it comes to this perspective, is that I'm interested in how these folks think about what culture is on their own terms. I'm not interested in coming in and saying, hey, culture is this and you're doing it wrong. Because frankly, whatever they're doing, that's the thing that's going to have an effect on people in the world. So if they think that culture is, you know, this thing where it's the driver, it's the thing that makes you click this many times or whatever, they're going to build their systems as though that's what culture means. Uh, and that's going to be the thing that people are going to have to deal with. So it doesn't do a whole lot of good for me to go in and say, well, actually, it's not clicking. Culture is something else. It's culture is, you know, the way that people make sense of their lives and the kinds of comparisons that they make between new decisions and old decisions or whatever, you know, that we have a hundred definitions of culture and anthropology that we could use. Um, so I've been pretty interested in this question more broadly of how technically minded people deal with problems that they understand to be cultural, right? We used to have this way of saying, you know, engineers tend to not think about culture. Uh, they tend to think their problems are not cultural. And so the job of an anthropologist would be to go in and say, hey, you have a culture problem. You think it's a technology problem, but it's a culture problem. And what I'm interested in, especially with something like music recommendation, is everybody knows that this is a cultural problem. There's no doubt that taste and music are culture things. And so what happens when engineers know that they're dealing with something cultural? What do they do anything different? Do they treat their engineering in a way that's not quite the same as they might if they were doing something that seemed less obviously cultural, like, you know, building a bridge. It would be interesting for me, uh, you know, you know, something you'd have to study to see how folks working, say, financial services imagine this question, because I would bet that you have similar problems with people thinking that, well, all I'm doing is, you know, I'm worried about money. I'm worried about technical stuff. This isn't cultural. And that, of course, someone like Taylor can tell you is not quite correct either. But I think what's really crucial here, Nick, about the approach that you've taken to trying to study the making and maintenance of these algorithmic systems is that you've said, look, I'm going to sort of withhold any judgment about what I think is going on and instead really try to track the ways that people build systems in response to the ways that they themselves imagine the world to work, right? So they think, you know, okay, I've got these this set of understandings around how people's cultural ideas, tastes, feelings might shape their behavior, I'm going to build a system that takes into account that set of understandings. But then that system, in some sense, becomes the thing that then shapes people's behavior. So it becomes this kind of feedback loop, and in not a simple sense, but it does have an impact then on the ways that culture actually does take shape in people's you know, real-life behaviors and practices. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's an old-time, like, radio person truism, that stuff that you play on the radio. Uh, if you play a song a lot of times, it's going to make people like it. Uh, and that feels, for many people, you know, not true to their experience. But it is at least minimally true that you can't know that you like a song until you've heard it. And so one of the arguments that people will make around, you know, a system like Spotify has going, say, uh, is that if they decide to recommend this kind of music, they are going to have play an active role in making that kind of music more popular than it would have been otherwise. And this is a concern that happens more broadly, right? Say on YouTube, this has been a recent controversy that if YouTube recommends uh, certain videos, it can amplify them, right? It'll make them more popular than they would have been. And if those videos happen to be, you know, extremist uh, white 
white nationalist videos, then they're going to be maybe accidentally amplifying hate speech. So these become very important problems in ways that are hard to predict, right? You don't necessarily know if you're an engineer from the get-go that it's going to happen this way. Arguably speaking, by this point in history, you should have a sense of the things that are likely to happen if you put a learning system out on the contemporary internet. Um, But this is something that people are still working through and learning about. So yeah, it makes a big difference how people think about cultural stuff. And I guess I can give you one really simple example from the music domain, because I think this makes a lot of sense. If you have a theory about why people like what they like, so whenever I interviewed someone, I'd say, hey, why do you think people like the music that they like? They would give me a variety of answers, right? So you might say, people like the music that they like because of how it sounds. So then a recommender system might say, okay, let's find the music that you already like. And who knows how we're going to decide what that is. Maybe you'll tell us. Maybe we'll just keep track of the music you listen to. Uh, And we're going to try to compute some number that tells us what the sound is like. Uh, And then we're going to try to find other music that has that same number. And we're going to give that to you as a recommendation. Now, there's a million decisions along the way about how you make those numbers, how you make those comparisons, what you show to people. But you'd be focused on the sound or you'd be focused on that audio signal. Or if you think, hey, people like what they like because they like what their friends like, you know, music taste is basically social. Then you might do something like, hey, connect your Facebook account and we're going to look at what your Facebook friends like and we're going to recommend you that stuff instead. And that's a different theory about why people like what they like, which will result maybe in different recommendations. Uh, And so those questions are very important. We want to understand how these systems are going to get built. But there's many other kinds of theories that could change that architecture. And it turns out in practice, many of those theories happen at the same time, right? So you'll have systems that are hybrid. They call them, they use the content, they use your friends, they use basically any data they can get. These are sort of, uh, you know, everything but the kitchen sink approaches. It kind of sounds to me that you're attempting to address the age old question of does art imitate life or does life imitate art? Is there an element of that in what you're describing? Oh my gosh. Uh, I suppose there is. I mean, these, these questions like Taylor's saying about feedback loops are super key for anthropologists who are interested in how something like culture that can feel very ethereal, it feels, you know, like the sort of ambient meaning sludge in which people live. Uh, we're interested in how that stuff becomes concrete, right? How, how it comes to feel very real. Uh, and those dynamics are usually kinds of feedback loops. It's not really the case that there just is a culture out there that makes something happen. People certainly have to sort of produce cultures. So Nick, put yourself inside a credit union for a second. Okay, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you have to make a decision about some kind of machine learning algorithm. Maybe it's to do fraud detection, right? Like you're building a system that's going to collect patterns around people's, you know, credit card behavior, and you want to be able to spot um, anomalies, right, that would indicate potential fraud. Or maybe it's about underwriting. You know, you're taking people's past repayment behavior, past, you know, credit and debt history and trying to predict, right, their likelihood to repay. What kinds of questions should credit union folks be asking of those systems and of the people who are building them? Like, where do you start when you're trying to understand what the potential outcomes of those systems might be? Yeah. So these are huge, important questions. And one of the reasons why I'm glad that I work in music, because uh, the stakes feel a little bit lower in music recommendation than they do in something like deciding whether people get loans. Uh, And there are very, you know, well-known historical examples of discrimination within, say, you know, the loan industry that are being relearned in algorithmic form now. So I would say that one of the first things 
I would suggest, and this is based on a lot of research that a lot of folks besides myself have done on algorithmic systems and discrimination, is that you're not going to know at the outset all of the questions that you need to ask. So in addition to having a set of questions that you want to ask yourself, which should be obviously things like, how might this be discriminatory? You also need a system in place to make sure that you can pick up new questions and pick up questions that are going to be important to the people who are affected by these systems. So as soon as you have a sense of who those people are, it's very crucial to bring those people in in some way, to bring them into the terms of design. And this sounds often like a sort of pie in the sky, like, oh, we should listen to everyone's point of view. But it's absolutely the case that if you take a machine learning system and learn, say, who is likely to repay alone, and you just sort of roll that out based only on what you think of as the objective number of likelihood for loan repayment, there's no doubt that you will make a discriminatory system. It's basically not possible to do an unsupervised kind of machine learning, unsupervised isn't the right word for that, but to do a kind of, you know, naive, let's say, machine learning like that, that does not reproduce some existing social systemic bias. And that's because we know that there are social systemic biases that are out in the world and machine learning systems, algorithmic systems can only operate on the basis of the information that they have. And so the information that gets put into the systems, as well as the kinds of choices that we make in designing those systems, are going to be shaped by the broader context in which we live, right? Exactly. Exactly. So we can talk for a second about this proxy problem. Uh, And this is a real computational problem for computer scientists, and it's a real-life problem for people who engage with these systems. So many of these high-profile examples of sort of algorithmic failures that we have more often in the news these days involve systems that have learned to be racist in in some sense. They've learned to discriminate against people based on their race. And there are a lot of debates that pop out after these things get in the news about why it happens, who should be held responsible, and so on. But we can think in the context of loans, for instance, right, everybody hopefully knows what redlining is, right? This practice of saying, okay, we're not allowed to explicitly take race into consideration when we give someone a loan. We're going to take zip code into consideration instead. And the famous, you know, result of taking zip code into consideration, resulting from the fact that people live where they live in part as a consequence of their race, means that you are basically just doing racial discrimination via zip codes, even though there's no race in the system, right? So we can think of, as many scholars have argued, some of these algorithmic profiling techniques as a kind of digital redlining, right? You say, okay, we're not going to use zip codes. Everyone knows that zip codes are also just a proxy. But given how profound uh, race and other demographic uh, variables like gender, how profoundly those things are entangled with people's life chances and everything that happens to someone, particularly in the United States, and this varies a bit you know, internationally, it's more or less impossible for you to develop a data set of personal data about people's lives that does not in some sense proxy for their race. Uh, so ironically enough, if you want to be race blind, if you want to cut out race and say, we're not going to put that into the equations, you're going to learn race accidentally. It's probably not accidental, but you're going to learn it out of the data that you have because it's going to be in there as a latent factor. It's going to be a sort of meta pattern that the system will find. Uh, And so ironically, the only way to sort of know whether you've done that is to put race in explicitly into the system and say, look, this is actually tracking onto the race data. The problem with doing that is that if you have what you think of as some sort of information about race or other demographic qualities, you are sort of operationalizing those qualities in a particular way. You're deciding that you know some data point is determining what someone's race is. So you're making that decision at the outset. This is why I argue a lot that 
this isn't a problem you can solve in advance. This is a problem that you need to think about in advance and be ready to solve along the way. You can't just sort of set it and forget it with these systems. And I think that that's really crucial for financial services at this point, because in some ways, you know, even though algorithmic decision-making has been around in one variety or another for a really long time in credit scoring and risk mitigation. I mean, you know, FICO is basically an algorithmic system and has been in existence for years and years. You know, I think that it's really crucial at this point in time when many, many financial institutions are beginning to um, re- um, you know, build new kinds of algorithmic systems that they that they relearn some of those lessons, right? Um, and keep them in mind as they go forward. And it strikes me, Nick, that your recommendation is, you know, to go back to one of your earlier answers, a recommendation to say, you know, okay, yes, you need to start with some questions, but you also just simply need to have a system in place so that you can pay attention and learn to ask new kinds of questions that maybe emerge along the way. That's really a question about culture, about organizational culture in particular, and making sure that, you know, you have built a, a kind of organization that is capable itself um, and the people inside the organization are themselves capable of responding to, you know, dynamic challenges as they emerge. So, you know, one of the things that I think your research allows us to talk about is how do you go about studying organizational culture? You're, you know, an ethnographer, you went and hung out in a startup company. And so you learned not just about algorithmic systems, you also learned about like business and how people do business and what people do when they work in startup companies or other kinds of, you know, business settings, you know, tech companies. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you learned um, about how those kinds of organizational cultures get built or maybe don't get built? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess before I turn to that, I just want to say that I would recommend uh, if people are interested in these questions of, let's say, digital redlining or FICO scores and the sort of history of these things, there's a few authors whose research you might want to pursue. So Chris Gilliard uh, is someone who writes about digital redlining and in education in particular. Uh, Martha Poon has written about FICO scores and the history of credit scoring. Um, and Virginia Eubanks has a terrific book, which is very accessible to a broader audience, called Automating Inequality, which is about, in particular, government service provision and how it's, there's a long history of this kind of automated discrimination that isn't just the, you know, the latest brand spanking new machine learning, it's been with us for a long time. So people who are involved in these industries, I think, really owe it to themselves to familiarize themselves with the history of this, because a big mistake that people make is assuming that algorithms are new because they feel high tech or something like that. But to get to your question about organization, um, I, one of the things I've realized as I get sort of long and rethinking and rethinking as anthropologists do about the same old research that I've done you know, for years now, um, I've realized that what I mean when I say algorithmic system, uh, when I talk about this sort of, you know, weirdly diffuse set of people and computers and data sets and all of that, um, I kind of mean an org chart. I kind of mean the organization of, of work. Uh, and one of the things that helped me realize this was that a colleague of mine uh, named Seda Gersis has uh, some interesting work on the history of, she works, she's a, a privacy scholar, a digital privacy scholar, has some work on the history of agile development in software companies, right? So this is the thing that startups will say is, you know, the best thing, the way you should organize your, your software company as it used to be, and this is sort of a fake past, but they'll say it used to be waterfall, which is that you would get a spec, 
you would build a system according to the spec. It would take a long time. Eventually, you would get it done. You would roll it all out at once. Uh, you would then see what happened, and then you might make a new version later. And that was inefficient, right? It required you to sort of figure out what you wanted in advance, to build it all up, to be potentially wrong, to wait a while to figure out if you were wrong and all of that. Uh, the way that software tends to get developed now is through these agile or lean methods, which are much more interested in continuous development, right? So this is why every you know website you use seems to change continuously, and all the phones on your app, uh, apps on your phone update you know every week because they're constantly pushing out tiny little updates to all parts of the system. And this is a way of organizing software labor, right? This is a way of changing what it means to build a computer program. Uh, in a sort of constantly iterating, constantly changing, constantly updating way. And this is why it's possible for me to say something, you know, like the Facebook you use tomorrow is not going to be the same as the Facebook you use today, uh, because at all sorts of levels, that software is being changed by literal people right now. And so one of the things that I've realized as I've started to look at organizational cultures and algorithms is that you can think of them as very closely mapped onto each other, right? The structure of decision-making within a company um, is often reflected in the code. And this is in some sense an old kind of finding. This is a thing people have been saying for a long time. Um, but when it comes to thinking about what an algorithm is, it makes sense to think about the hierarchy of decisions within a company and what kind of decisions are permissible. So I have a horrible example that I like to give people of this, which is about Facebook. Uh, and so people maybe know that Mark Zuckerberg is a majority shareholder in Facebook and thus gets to decide, ultimately speaking, anything he wants uh, about how that system works. So Mark Zuckerberg, who's the king of Facebook, could decide tomorrow uh, that he wanted to put your newsfeed in alphabetical order uh, instead of doing the fancy algorithmic thing they do now. It would be an algorithm, right? It's a sorting algorithm. It's a simple one. Um, sorry for the people with the Z last names, but he could sort you all in alphabetical order and say, this is the way it goes. Uh, and the question is, why does he not do that? Right. So Mark Zuckerberg doesn't do that for a variety of reasons, most of which involve his ideas about what Facebook is for. Right. It would be very easy to find posts, conceivably, if you put them all there in alphabetical order, you just look them up. Um, but he doesn't put them in that order because he has some idea about how the system's supposed to work. And the only thing stopping him is that idea. And imagine what would happen if he tried, right? If he tried to do it that way, you could imagine different people within the organization saying, hey, that's not okay. We should do it some other way, right? This doesn't make any sense. What's, what's wrong with you? Has something happened? Uh, and so that structure, that structure that forces the system to stay the way it is now, that's really important to what shape the algorithm actually has, right? It's the thing that sort of maintains the status quo. It's the thing that determines the direction that these systems are going to go in. So if you don't know about the organizational decision-making culture, which if you're a financial services company trying to sort of bring in an outside uh, a software provider, it includes your company, right? It includes decision-making within your own organization. If you don't know that, then you actually don't know how the algorithm is going to work in the future or how it really ultimately works, right? What happens when it breaks? What happens when it does something that embarrasses you? So I have to ask the obvious question here. Given all these threats and risks, a credit union might be thinking, why even bother? <laughs> credit unions are known for their connection to their members and knowing their members' data themselves on a human-to-human -human level. Is this something that credit unions are going to have to face no matter what. They can't ignore there's a wave of AI, ML coming your way. Or like, why bother with something that's seemingly so potentially dangerous? To be honest, I think my answer is you don't have to. I think that there's a sense that people need to update their technical infrastructure to be the latest, hottest thing just because. And if that's the reason, uh, don't. Right? I think that it's a big commitment 
to use one of these systems. Uh, it's a big commitment to being proactive about identifying biases. You know, not that you didn't have to be proactive about other kinds of biases beforehand, but it would be very easy to bring in one of these kinds of systems to think it's automated and therefore taken care of to, you know, not hire as many human minders as you might and to be overwhelmed, right? To have this problem of scale where, sure, great, this lets you serve more people. But when those people have problems with your system, you actually don't have enough, um, you know, sort of human decision-making power uh, around to deal with the problems. So I would say one of the questions that, that anyone thinking about implementing some sort of machine learning system should ask is, do I actually need this? Like, can I make a clear case about what benefit this will provide to me or to my organization, but also to the people uh, who my organization is serving? So in that case, I think that some of this sort of wariness and vague, you know, conservatism of folks in this kind of space is a feature. I think it's a useful thing. You know, God forbid they rush into this space and discover that they've been, you know, using a system that has terribly discriminatory outputs. I don't think I can overstate uh, the dangers of those kinds of discrimination and the sort of real likelihood that they will happen unless you're very careful. Yeah. And I would just simply add that, you know, Nick, your point about building systems that are capable, you know, with people inside them that are capable of keeping an eye out is absolutely crucial. And one way that credit unions and you know, others in this space can do that is through really age-old processes of cooperation and collaboration, Yeah. right? Credit unions have developed a whole series of models for working together to solve really intransigent problems that on an individual institutional level are basically impossible to solve, um, at least at scale. So credit unions have a whole range of resources, conceptual as well as technical and institutional resources at hand through which they can begin to slowly work their way around these problems of, you know, the unintentional, sometimes intentional, but typically unintentional effects of algorithmic automation, data-driven automation. Yeah, I think it would be so exciting for me if something like this emerged out of the sort of world of credit unions where we would actually see what it looked like for a collaborative and, you know, genuinely participatory uh, kind of approach to implementing these systems. If something like that came out of the, the world of credit unions, that would be so exciting. Um, because I think what we see now primarily are these systems being fairly unilaterally imposed uh, on people who have no recourse, right? And this is the problem with the quote-unquote black boxness of many of these systems. Uh, it's you know, these systems aren't black boxes just because that's what it's like to have something in a computer. They're black boxes for legal reasons and for sort of social reasons, right? The reason you don't know how the Facebook newsfeed algorithm works isn't just because it's software and who knows, right? It's because Facebook has an interest in not letting you know in detail. And they'll say the interest is, you know, let people know then you would have spammers being very good at gaming the algorithm and so on. Um, but I think that one of the ways around this is to involve people who are going to be affected by it. And people make various arguments, right? That means that you should have diverse teams because the kinds of questions that you're going to think to ask are going to be informed by your own experiences, both with computers and with financial services, right? Uh, so bring in people who have diverse ranges of experience with financial services. Uh, this is a fairly classic research kind of issue, right? To say, well, we don't know. We can't guess how everyone in the world is going to react. And, you know, we certainly shouldn't just extrapolate from our own personal experiences. Um, so bringing in people uh, as experts who are experts in the way that their lives can be affected by these systems is super important. 
um, it doesn't always mean that those people are going to be experts at how to program a computer. And I think that that's one of the damaging effects of this kind of algorithms are mysterious computer things that no one understands discourse, because it really sets them up as a technical problem that should be reserved for, you know, coders with a capital C, right, only for these real experts. Uh, whereas the kind of problems that they have and, and that they can face are not problems that require, you know, special coder expertise. They require lived experience. They require a sense of the kinds of problems that are likely to occur and a regular attention to what problems are beginning to occur. I mean, it really strikes me that what you're saying, I mean, market researchers around the world would recognize this as something that, you know, they try to provide for organizations all the time, right? Like you can't make decisions about your users and consumers based on your own experience. So you should go talk to them and see what they say. But it's also something that anthropologists do all the time, right? This is truly the anthropological method. So, you know, I mean, it strikes me that there's some real common ground here. Absolutely. And I think there's a good reason for every company in the world to hire a ton of anthropologists. <laughs> That's my, un my unbiased opinion. There it is. There um, <laughs> But but yeah, I know it's true. I think that it matters to bring in people. And, you know, I mean, it's not the case that all market research techniques, like even, you know, that bring in people in focus groups or whatever, it's not the case that those all succeed in giving a voice to the variety of people that you might want to give a voice to. So I think that, you know, there's room to think critically about those processes and how you can change them. Absolutely. That's where, to my mind, this, this expert, non-expert distinction uh, is something that's really harmful. That is a very important thing to overcome. You don't want to bring in people just to be like, what do these fools think is actually happening, but they don't know. That's not a useful way to go about solving these problems, but it's definitely something that I've seen happen. Yeah, or just to give you a really concrete example, you know, when it comes to the lived experience of people of color, you know, market research focus groups will often be mixed groups, right? You have folks from a whole variety of walks of life. And, you know, that's not going to tell you very much at all about the way that one particular population or one particular um, group experiences a system or experiences a, a process um, or experiences life, right? Yeah. You need to, in the technical language, oversample, right? Um, to really be able to and be really attentive to when people are comfortable talking, you know, what are the situations in which they're actually going to share their experiences. So absolutely, the kinds of research methods that we use in organizational and industry settings need to change in order for them to have some teeth, as you put it. Yeah, it's focus groups 101 or maybe focus groups 102, right, that you don't want to bring in a quote unquote diverse focus group to get the diverse range of opinions because that's not what you get. Out of, a, out of a room that's full of people with all sorts of different experiences, yep. you probably get whatever the most powerful person in the room experience is. So yeah, breaking out those groups uh, and identifying them. And that's, I think, one thing that arguably speaking, some of this data science work can help people do, right? You can find, you know, the whole point of these systems is to find patterns in data. And so ostensibly, right, you could use a machine learning system to help you find, you know, clusters of kinds of people having similar experiences with your services that you might not have recognized as having similar experiences with your services before. Um, so that might be something that you could use, right? I could imagine, and people are trying to do this kind of thing more now, um, a sort of integrated, you know, data science, ethnographic focus group approach where you, uh, you know, try to cycle through all of these different ways of, you know, identifying patterns, finding people who are in those groups, figuring out what's going on with them and sort of iterating. Um, and all of these approaches are linked by just a commitment to ongoing research, which is, for me, the key thing here.
We talk a lot about democratization of data, and I wonder if wonder what your thoughts are on kind of the future of democratization of AI systems. Like the music recommender example is an interesting one to me because that seems more one-on-one. Like me as an individual can tell this system what I want to listen to or not want to listen to. And over time it learns me. And then is there an aggregation of that then that let's imagine that um, I control the algorithm that affects me and everybody else also does. Is that a possible future where the systems can learn directly on an individual level from those interacting with it? So the way that these systems are built now is super centralized, right? You interact with the system, all of your interactions go into some huge table in, you know, Amazon headquarters, basically, and uh, the computations all happen there. Um, that has a variety of things that people don't like about it, one of which is the fact that if you, you know, wanted to change uh, providers, you wanted to go from one company to another, whether that's a music streaming service or, or a movie streaming service or a financial services or whatever, uh, you can't bring your data with you. You have privacy issues, right? This is the pervasive tracking problem, which people are getting more and more concerned with. Uh, so as it's built now, no. There are people who are trying to build more distributed versions of these systems that will do things like uh, compute recommendations for you locally on your phone, for instance, right? So they'll figure out some sort of data about what you're doing with, you know, your music listening or your reading of articles or something like that. Um, send some summarized slash encrypted version of it to a central place, um, but do all of the calculation that requires knowing specific stuff about what you've done, uh, doing that on your phone itself. So that's one sort of technical model that people are trying to make happen. I'm not sure if it will succeed. You know, these are economic questions as well as technical ones. Uh, so that's one version. The other thing I should say is, as part of this, I was, I've studied the history of recommender systems, which are not that old, right? They're developed basically in the mid-1990s around the sort of origins of the World Wide Web, um, primarily by academic researchers who are interested in you know, this question of, of information overload, right? Oh, no, the internet, we have so much stuff available to us. How are we going to find the stuff that we want? Uh, is the signal going to be drowned out in the noise? So from the very beginning, these systems are imagined to be helpers for people who uh, might be overwhelmed. And some of these early papers before these systems really exist out in the wild are doing things like maybe there will be independent recommendation bureaus and you'll be able to sort of sign up for one with people you feel like represent kind of your people in whatever way you want to define that. Uh, and you'll have a profile that you sort of keep with them. And if you wanted to get a recommendation from, you know, Spotify or Netflix or Amazon, um, you would give those companies, you know, your ID from this recommendation bureau, and they would be able to sort of uh, calculate something on the basis of that. And the idea is, you know, you are then a little bit more in control of what they might call your taste profile or this sort of data about yourself. As they envisioned it, it required kind of a lot of technical expertise on the part of any given user to maintain your own uh, your own taste profile. And I'm not sure what the analogous thing would be for something like a financial services. I mean, Nick, it really sounds a lot like a credit union. Yeah. A group of people who share an associational common bond, right? You know, share their data willingly and voluntarily with an institution that then acts as a platform and a portal to be able to access a whole range of other third-party providers. That's essentially what a credit union does today. So how cool would it be if credit unions were the folks 
who came up with a way to make this kind of data legitimately portable and to make it be the kind of thing that you could decide to participate in a way that gave you some power over how you were represented. I think that there's some serious engineering challenges here in part because part of the discourse about this data is that it's objective about people, right? It just says what the real deal. Um, this is a, not quite true, but it is out of people's control in some sense. And I would imagine there'd be a worry about, you know, if you were able to bring your data from place to place, how do they know you're not lying? How do they know you didn't doctor your own data? Right. Uh, something like that. But those are questions that it would be great to have to address rather than to just assume are unaddressable. Mm -hmm. The main reason I asked is I have a friend that recently was telling me he was trying to block all songs of Imagine Dragon from any music streaming system he uses. And so far, it had been unsuccessful. Was that me? Because I <laughs> tried to do that, too. No. I'm really not interested in the originators of the Spider-Man musical. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems <laughs> like the, in this case, the algorithm is just messing with him. And it's like, oh, you don't want that song? Okay. So I think a lot of times we oftentimes do that as well as like this machine is out to get me. Well, you know what's amazing? Nick has explained this to me before, and I'm sure you could do a better job. But one of the things that some of these um, recommendation systems do in order to try to get more data from you or to sort of hone their own, um, you know, to tailor their responses to you is to every once in a while introduce new things into the system that have nothing to do with your previous choices or selections, right? And so they're trying to just sort of see, okay, like, how is this going to work, right? Let's send you a popular song mm -hmm. and, you know, that um, produces a response, learn, right? That learn then it from can your learn. reactions to Yeah, exactly. It. Is that right, Nick? That is right. So in machine learning, they call this the explore-exploit problem, which is that, you know, if I feel like I know something about you, I know what music you like, I can recommend you more of that and you're probably going to like it, although you might get tired of it over time. Um, but it's totally possible that, you know, pretend this is what people do, pretend that music, the world of music is this kind of landscape, right? So you live in like one little valley uh, right now, but maybe there's music in like a couple of valleys over that you would really like if only you knew about it. So the question, right, is maybe I should try to recommend you stuff from sort of a little bit farther out from where you are just to see if you like it. Because if you do, that's great. I, that's really useful uh, information, arguably for you, um, but certainly for the company, because they can now recommend you more stuff. And the way that people talk about that kind of dynamic in music is something I've been interested in in a variety of extremely geeky anthropological ways. Um, but at the base level, right, this explore-exploit thing is why I think that this question of, you know, is, is machine learning just extrapolating the past into the future, right? Are they just repeating what they already know and thus not letting people change, right? They're locking you into your past. I think that doesn't tell the whole story in a lot of these systems because part of what they are interested in is this kind of sampling, this kind of exploring, this testing of other possibilities. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the analogous thing could be uh, in the context of financial services, um, but it is interesting to see that they, you know, many folks who build machine learning systems want these systems to be open to change. So the whole point of them is they should be responsive to new things. It's not just about locking you in uh, to the old and figuring out how people work around these dynamics when sort of arguably that in an inbuilt way, these systems just reproduce the past. Uh, that's an interesting problem. Yeah. And I think that it's actually really crucial for financial services to have systems, whether, you know, they're human decision-making systems or algorithmic decision-making systems, that's a thats a false binary, sorry, Nick. But, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's really crucial, actually, that they are able to adapt to change because people's lives change, right? And their financial needs evolve across the course of their life cycle. 
they evolve, you know, on the basis of your relationships with other people. And so, you know, you may not want to buy a car right now, but, you know, in five years, maybe you will, right? Because you've had a kid or, you know, you don't have the ability to start saving for retirement now, but guess what? You may want to in the future. So there are going to be new services that you want and need to attend to new financial needs as they arrive across the course of your life cycle. Yeah. And if the point of your service rate is to help people better their lives, it would be horrible if you were also using an analytic system that did not allow for the possibility of people's lives to get better, right? Like like the whole point of it is to help people. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to actually have an opportunity for credit unions to engage with us in Seattle in May at an event that is covering a lot of these similar topics. Taylor, do you want to do a quick kind of overview of that for our listeners? So if they're really drawn into this conversation, a little bit about what they can expect at that event? Yeah, absolutely. So in Seattle in May, we're bringing together research from our Center for Emerging Technology, which is led by a researcher, academic, scholar, Uh, named Bill Maurer, who shares a little bit of history with both Nick and I. He was, uh, um, (laughs) he served as our dissertation advisors um, at UC Irvine. But Bill is going to be bringing to credit unions new research that he's working on, much of which dives into the question of data-driven automation for financial services, the potentials, the risks. And he's going to have a whole range of experts join him to talk about the implications for these new technologies on trust, trust in institutions, trust among users, trust um, between people and the technologies that they use in their everyday lives. So I think that there's going to be a really deep conversation there, one that I think will actually build on some of the ideas that Nick has voiced here in this conversation around the potential for cooperative structures of you know technology development and algorithmic decision-making. So I'm really excited about that event. I think that everyone who's interested in the future of technology and financial services ought to be there. And um, so we hope to see you in Seattle. Yeah, quick plug for it. If you want to register, it's filene.org slash trust tech. And that's, there's an agenda on that page as well. So you can dive into all of the details there. Okay, is there anything else that either of you want to mention before we sign off on this episode? Well, I, I want, want to say one thing about trust, actually, because this comes up a lot in sort of this relatively recent machine learning, AI and ethics kind of conversation. Uh, where people say, you know, we want to build systems that optimize for trust, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, the technical language that we want to optimize for, you know, whatever we want our system to do. And I've always thought it to be interesting because I've seen it presented to me by computer scientists who say, well, trust is a user interest, right? Users want to trust their system. So we need to make sure that we make systems that they trust. And this strikes me as uh, an important detail that is fairly often overlooked, which is that users don't care about trusting their systems. They care about using trustworthy systems. And it is very easy to get your optimization targets wrong and to imagine a machine learning system that is designed to get people to trust your system, not to get your system to be trustworthy, uh, right? To trick people effectively into trusting what you're doing. Uh, And so one of the things that I've uh, tried to weigh in on as these questions come to me more and more often uh, is to really foreground that 
problem. It's very easy for people to say, well, I'm a trustworthy person. So the problem is that people just don't trust me. Uh, I need to convince them that this is, you know, trustable um, when really they could be looking at the processes that they use to make decisions uh, and figuring out how to make them more accountable in a way that makes them worthy of user trust. Because users, you know, it's, they have an interest in not trusting systems that aren't trustworthy. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I think what you're suggesting is really truly that we need to build systems, whether they're technological system or institutional systems, that put the burden of trust on themselves, not on the people who rely on them and who use them. So we want to build systems that are worthy of people's trust, truly worthy of people's trust. And I think that that involves systems of accountability. Exactly. And I think that it would be so cool if credit unions were the place that this came out of. And I think it fits so nicely, actually, with what we started talking about this question of you know, what is an algorithm? Well, it's also kind of an institution. It's also kind of an organization of labor. It's never just a technological thing. And given the sort of innovative position that credit unions are in and can continue to be in in terms of how they're organized, that's a great spot for really thinking about in algorithms as organizational forms, not just the machine learning system that someone sells you and you build and that's it. That's fantastic. Thanks, Nick. And I think that that's a really great place to, to end on. Yeah, this conversation was so fun. I have actually so many more questions for you, but I hope you will join us again for another episode and we can take it to part two. Thanks very much, Nick. Of course. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. All right. That's it for the fill-in, folks. Thanks again for listening. And thank you to Nick Seaver for all that knowledge. If you're interested in the event we discussed during this episode, you can find more information and register for The Future of Trust, How Technology Will Make It or Break It for Your Credit Union, on May 29th and 30th in Seattle at filene.org slash trusttech. You can also catch us in Boston on August 13th and 14th, and Austin on September 26th and 27th. And for this year's Big Bright Minds, we'll be in Durham on November 19th and 20th. Head to filene.org slash events for more on these. If you like this episode, please do rate us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. And make sure you're subscribed to the Filene Fill-In Podcast so you can keep up with what's going on at Filene. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. To get in touch about today's show, email me at hollyf at filene.org or find us on Twitter at Filene Research. Until next time, thanks everyone.